0: I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is my second episode with my friend and colleague, Dr. Maureen Rubin, and I think you're all going to love this episode. We are talking about values, core belief, identity, all the things that go into who we are as a human being and what form our psyche and sometimes form it in negative ways so we end up with eating disorders. So we're just going to jump right in. Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am the luckiest soul. I am sitting across from my friend and colleague for the second time on the show. I would like to introduce all of you to Dr. Maureen Rubin. Mo, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Karen.
0: It is so good to have you back. And as listeners heard me when I introduced her again, we call her Mo. That's how I've known Mo for years and years and years. So that's what we are going to call you throughout the rest of the episode. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and I have a doctorate in psychology I'm currently in private practice in California, and I'm actually expanding to become a group practice, Um, so that's very exciting, and I've been working and specializing in eating disorders since 2008, and I love what I do.
0: Beautiful. I love it. I love it so much. So, Mo. You were on the show a a little while back, and first of all, you and I just always seem to have this great dialogue. So it seemed really interesting and and just natural to say, oh no, we're not done, come back. And so one of the things or a few of the things that we wanted to talk about in this episode are, are really getting into core beliefs getting into our values, what we perceive as our identity. So I just threw that little list out to you and I'm going to ask you to start. Where would you like to start? And then we'll go from there.
1: I think we should start with maybe one of the first items in the list that you mentioned, which was core beliefs. If I'm remembering correctly, the ending of our last episode, we kind of touched on I am and identity as a concept. And that really was the segue into us doing this again. I like the idea of starting there.
0: I do too. And if you remember, the I am, and, and also if you all heard me say just a few minutes ago, the perceive our perceived identity, because what I was saying in our last episode is people will say, I am bulimic. I am anorexic. I am fill in the dot. And the reality is, is you are not, that is not your identity. That is something that you are struggling with. And one of the reasons why this is important is because people, some people struggle for many, 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 many years and see it as their identity. I'm identified by that. Everybody knows me as this. I know myself as this. And you and I are here to say, nope, absolutely not. That is not your identity. So I'm just going to, I'm going to hand it over to you and say, where would you like to begin with this I am conversation?
1: Maybe we should start with how it develops, right where because we have to sort of reverse engineer to understand how identity forms. We don't start off um, struggling with identity or having a perception of ourselves. We actually start off with a thought and this is very kind of basic cognitive behavioral therapy. This is one of the tenets of CBT for those who are familiar with it. But the basic principle is that thoughts, Turn into feelings and feelings turn into behaviors and behaviors turn into outcomes or results and results or outcomes turn into identity. And so that's sort of the progression. So, really, people oftentimes will want to recover and change their outcome. They'll try to change their results, right? I don't like the results that I'm getting. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to try to just do things differently behaviorally. And oftentimes, most of the times, that doesn't work because really the core issue is that you haven't yet dealt with the feelings or the thoughts that lead to that behavior or outcome. And that's why. Diets oftentimes fail because diets are geared towards just doing something different behaviorally. And that's why the majority of people try to implement some new kind of resolution or behavioral change without actually doing the deeper work to learning what are the thoughts and feelings that go along with the outcomes and results that I'm getting in my life.
0: And this is also why we say it's so important to understand the function of an eating disorder because underneath, and I'm just sort of saying what, you're, what you just said, but in a different way, underneath the behavior, there is a function. It, it is There is a function for the thoughts and feelings that we are having, right? And so if we just try to do cessation of behaviors it is like a bandaid over it until more stressors come back into our lives and we don't understand them. So where do we go from here?
1: Well, I think it's important to understand that most of our thoughts are records of the past. And I wouldn't consider myself to be a cognitive behavioral therapist. It's just something that we all get trained in to some degree, but I think it's important to understand that our thoughts are all records of the past, and we have about 70,000 thoughts a day, some of them we are conscious of, some of them occur subconsciously, but if I have the same thoughts today that I had yesterday, and the day before that, and the day before that, stemming all the way back to the first time I had that thought... Not only has it become a part of me, but then those thoughts create familiar feelings and those feelings create familiar behaviors and those behaviors create familiar results. And then before you know it, I'm starting to say things like I'm anorexic, I'm bulimic, um, I value thinness or I don't need anyone or whatever that is.
0: And it reminds me of this image that I gave the last time you were talking, what, that you and I were, were having a conversation, which is about uh, big traumas and little traumas. And We were talking about little traumas, the ones that people don't know have been happening around somebody. And so nobody knows to say, are you okay? Or, And I use the example of the child on the playground who all of a sudden their friends start teasing them and bullying them and then run away giggling and blah, blah, blah. And then that soul just stands there all of a sudden thinking all of these negative thoughts about themselves and nobody knows it. So nobody goes over to, to challenge it and say, no, 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 you are not bad. No, you're not silly. You're not stupid, whatever it is. And when that doesn't happen, when nobody challenges that thought, we almost look for more evidence to confirm that. And that's where we keep saying, no, I've, I have been stupid. I'm using that as an example, since I was six years old on the playground, because that's what I was told.
1: Right. And what you're touching on is, what happens with a thought that doesn't get challenged, and eventually it does become a belief. And if you think about, you know, my favorite way to describe a belief to my clients is a belief is a thought that, or a feeling that we are certain about. It goes unquestioned. And even in the face of evidence, we still hold true and feel in our bodies that that is a truth. Right? So if I was to say I believe in Santa Claus, right? I believe in that, I you know I might see Santa at the mall and I might find evidence to support that, but I might also hopefully, hopefully learn over time that that belief becomes outdated. So many of our core beliefs, they are outdated, but we don't get an upgrade to a new belief. And so our life is based on these beliefs that we formed in our childhood in environments where we were unable to have healthy coping skills or even have the wherewithal to survive that experience differently.
0: So not that I want to jump ahead very far, but I do kind of want to jump ahead and say, so what happens? What, what, How do you work with clients when they come into your room and they say, I, I am stupid and forgive me everyone. I don't even like that word. And I just keep using that as the example and it doesn't feel very good, but it's what came to my mind. I've known it my whole life. I've been told that I've had proof of it. It's, it is, it is a core. It is who I am.
1: Yeah, That's a great example. And, um, so There are different ways that you can identify where this comes from. Uh, The first thing that I would always encourage, if you were my client, you came in and you said that, what I would ask you is, where do you feel that in your body? Think of the earliest memory you have of where you felt that belief in your body, in your nervous system. Go back to your earliest memory of it. What was happening? Who were you with? And then I try to instill in them a knowing that even though right now, this belief is painful, at the time that belief formed as a merchant of hope, because if something is about me, then I have an empowerment, a sense of power, and the hope that I might be able to change the outcome. And so little kids oftentimes will make things in our external world that have very little to do with them about them so that they have a a locus of control, right? So they have a way to figure out how can I have control in this situation? And so I would think about right now that belief is creating hurt and pain and maybe is limiting, right? It's a limiting core belief. But at the time how did that belief serve you? How was that belief creating hope, right? Because I would, I w- it may be a stretch, but I might suggest that if the belief at the time was, oh, I'm so stupid or I'm foolish or I'm a naive, that that might've at the time fueled a desire to want to not be those things anymore. In some ways that might've been a, a merchant of hope in some ways, but what I do with my clients is I do the downward um, arrow activity. Have you, have you heard of this one,
0: I, Karen? I actually have not. I have not.
1: I'm not sure, in all honesty, if this is something that I've made up or if this is something that actually exists in the therapy world. So I love full it. Disclosure, but disclosure. Um, so that's really the, the origin of why I asked you. Is this something you do
0: too? <laughs> and and by the way everyone you're hearing it here first mo mo is telling you what this is so mo give us your your understanding of the downward arrow
1: so the downward arrow activity is where you ask a client to write down a thought that they have often and usually our thoughts are rippling out from our core beliefs So let's say a thought I have often, and maybe this is a real thought, so I'll do a real example. A thought I have often is, I procrastinate too much, right? That's a thought I have often. Then to do the downward arrow activity, you ask yourself, what does that mean about me? And the answer should reveal something that you think about yourself as a person, and so maybe when you draw a downward arrow and you ask yourself, what does that mean about me? The thought that comes next is it means I'm lazy. Then you take it even further. And what does that mean about me? Well, it means that I'm a failure. And what does that mean about me? Well, it means that I'm inadequate, not good enough, right? I'm not good enough is a fundamental core belief. And there's, there are a lot of common core beliefs, like I'm inadequate, I'm unlovable, I'm ashamed, I'm unworthy. And those are our core beliefs. Those core beliefs ripple out into thoughts, which ripple out into feelings, which ripple out into behaviors, which ripple out into identity. And so for us to do the inner work, we really have to get down into the core origin stories that we've told ourselves That originally were designed to help us change, to help us have hope. And sometimes when it comes to trauma, and this is something that you know you and I talked about in the previous episode, when it comes to trauma, a lot of times there are these common, there are these two common core beliefs that form that are actually more like coping skills, which I see often when it comes to eating disorders. And the first one is. Uh, perfectionism. That's a coping strategy that occurs when a traumatic, emotionally traumatic incident happens. Perfectionism is a coping strategy that occurs to deal with it. That's the first kind of common coping strategy. And then the second one is something that I call ultra independence, right? And so the two of those coping strategies have their own beliefs associated with it. When it comes to perfectionism, the idea is something like, um, it really hurts to not be taken care of. It really hurts that my needs are not being met. It's my fault. To cope with that, I need to be perfect. It involves self-blame, you try to earn love. There's themes of codependency in there. You try to feel worthy by achieving. This is something, this is a coping strategy that gets embedded and gets, and gets rooted in a person as a result of experiencing emotional neglect that eventually has ties to eating behaviors later on in life for some. Other people will express it in different ways, maybe through work or career or other ways, but for some, it gets expressed through food and their body.
0: You know, when you were talking about the downward arrow, for whatever reason, what kept coming to my mind was EMDR. And I don't know if listeners are aware of what EMDR is. It's eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It is a trauma model that is, well, it's a trauma model that I I have gratefully been trained in. And I think it's, it's really fantastic. And one of the things that you do is you create an image of something, and then you say, what is the negative cognition you have around this, this, this snapshot? You also try to say, what is the positive cognition that you're looking for? And by the way, it's not just like negative cognition is like, I feel sad. Positive cognition is I feel happy. Like it goes a little bit deeper than that. And then we just keep breaking it down. And, you know, the client goes through an image and I say, and I want you to go with that, meaning don't think, just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what I was thinking of when you were talking about the downward, the downward arrow, it just keeps breaking it down more and more and more until we get to the core of the feeling, the trauma, whatever it is. And then we say, oh, okay. So that's where this comes from. Is that, do I, am I making sense when I say that or just rambling? Yeah.
1: (laughs) No, absolutely. And you know, the research, and you know this, Karen, the research really supports EMDR, and especially when you're able to have some somatic experience while doing it and connect it with what's going on in my nervous system as I have this image that I'm holding in my mind. And so it's really important to do the mind body connection work, and EMDR is a great way to do that.
0: So how do we distinguish between core beliefs and values? Like I value, um, uh, I, I value love and, and I, it's a core belief. Like I, I, I guess I'm sort of, yeah. I'm sort of stuck here with my words, Mo. So help me out what's the difference? How does, how do you explain to someone the difference between their core beliefs and their values? And do they go together or are you working against them? Mm. In opposition, I mean, opposition.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, a belief is a feeling or a thought that I'm certain about. And a core belief is a feeling or a thought that I'm certain about that is deeply embedded in my core that I may unconsciously believe and a value. The way that I describe it is it's an emotional state that I must experience in order for my needs to be met. And we can all value different things, but it's an emotional state that we must experience in order to give our lives meaning. And so And our values drive our behaviors. That's why it's important to know that. So let's say that I value security. If security is an emotional state that I must experience, that means that when I walk into a building, I unconsciously look for where all the exit signs are. And when I look for the exit signs, I have a sense, an emotional state. I experience an emotional state of security. And my life is driven by those values. It's very important to me, right? Something I value is something that's important to me. And so sometimes in our eating disorders, we say, well, I don't, you know, I have a value and I'm not living in alignment with that value. I have a value for connection, but I'm not experiencing that emotional state. While I'm in my eating disorder, or I have a value of authenticity, but I'm not experiencing that emotional state in my eating disorder. My question becomes, what do you value that you are experiencing in your eating disorder? Perhaps it's a sense of certainty. Perhaps it's a sense of control. Perhaps it's a sense of achievement or worthiness, right? There are emotional states that you are experiencing that you hold in high regard, let's find other ways to give you that emotional state that is more healthy, that is has less negative com- consequences.
0: I also look at it from the perspective of sometimes our core beliefs, again, are in complete opposition of what our values are. So if I value love and connection, but my core belief is that I'm, I'm unworthy and and nobody likes me. And I'm a loser. Or what I've got, I'm using really negative words to everyone. And I apologize. That's, that's not my usual, but, but by the way, that was that that's me being nice to myself. When I was in my eating disorder, you should have heard what I was really saying to myself. So if I valued connection, but my core belief was I'm unlovable. I'm going to do things in my eating disorder that I think are going to create connection. How can I manipulate my body so I am like other and I connect? How can I pretend I enjoy doing all these things so I can connect? So that's when I often say to clients, whatever it is that you're looking for, that you're wanting to get from the eating disorder, I want you to get it too. I want you to have connection. By the way, Mo, I want you to have a sense of security when you walk into a room, but that's the last thing you're gonna have if you're in a brain fog because you just binged and purged for three hours before walking into this meeting. It takes us farther away. So I say, what are other ways of getting it? Just like, just as you were saying that.
1: And also what you're doing so brilliantly is really challenging. Are you, are you getting those needs met? Is that really what you're experiencing or is it a pseudo connection, a pseudo sense of security? Um, But it just, what it brought up for me is oftentimes when we don't understand our belief systems, we think that other people are overreacting. I just had a session um, with a lovely family And the mom, um, her daughter came to me and she's in recovery from an eating disorder. And the mom in our family session said, you know, she just, I served her pizza, just like the dietician said, it was the correct portion. And my daughter took a bite and just burst into tears. And she was hysterical and she is completely overreacting. I mean, she's just overreacting, overeating that pizza. And sometimes, even if you're not struggling with an eating disorder, sometimes you might have an emotional reaction and feel like, "Am I overreacting? Is this, uh, you know, hysterical? Am I being dramatic?" And the truth is, 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 I don't believe in overreactions. It's never an overreaction. If you believed what your daughter believed, even subconsciously, right, then you would be reacting the same way. And so. Working with with this with the daughter, we kind of sat together and, and this is where I incorporate beliefs into my family therapy work where I asked her to kind of break down the thoughts that she was having during that meal. And she said something along the lines of, well, if I eat this pizza, I believe that it'll change my body instantly in a negative way and that people will find me to be undesirable and unattractive and I'll look sloppy and messy and I'll feel disgusting and then I'll and then no one will love me and I'll feel inadequate and bad about myself well if I f- believed those things to be true I might burst into tears too right and so there really is no such thing as an over over reaction the emotional reaction that you have to anything is an invitation to look at what must you believe to be true in order for you to feel the way that you're feeling right now? And that's applicable outside of eating disorder recovery. That's applicable to any sort of feelings that we have that we don't understand or don't know how to make sense of.
0: And this is also when we, when Carolyn Costin and Gwen Grab talk about it's about the food and it's not about the food that emotional reaction from that young soul was not actually about the cheese on top of the tomato sauce on top of the bread it what that's not what it was that one bite though represented a tidal wave of fears like you had just said when you had her break it down so that's when we say it is not about the food it is about core beliefs of desirability and that's terrifying was that mom able to sort of take a step back and 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 by the way, not, nothing against the mom, the the mother didn't, doesn't know. She doesn't know. People don't assume that one bite of pizza can then create this tidal wave. But was there a different understanding when when you were able to break it down like that?
1: Yeah, I think so. And what I did with the mom was I said, "What do you believe to be true that is making you feel?" afraid and feeling as though your daughter is overreacting what do, what must you hold to be true in order for this dynamic to occur and mom was able to kind of go inward as well and say i believe and this was sort of hard for her to acknowledge but i'm i believe or i'm afraid that my daughter might not get better And I believe that my daughter might be stuck in this eating disorder for the rest of her life. And I believe I have failed her in some way. And, you know, so a lot of it is really just inviting both people to look at what is everyone holding to be true in this moment, because there's, what's true for me, there's what's true for you. And then there's the universal truth. And both mom and daughter were experiencing their truths, which were which were colored by their own core beliefs. Mom's belief of, I'm a failure, or I've let my daughter down in some way, and daughter's belief of, I'm unworthy and unlovable, unless I'm perfect.
0: And so imagine two people sitting there, and to the naked eye, I don't know why I'm using that expression things look fine, little tense, mother, daughter, whatever. And if we saw not just one thought bubble, but all the thought bubbles that they were both having, we would see the intensity of fear and insecurity, frustration, self-degradation, like all these things going on. And nine times out of 10, when you say to someone like, how are you doing? They're like, I'm fine. And all those thought bubbles, all those core beliefs are happening, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why I, in the work that I do, I focus a lot on self compassion. And compassion for others, compassion for self is absolutely necessary. It's essential, in my belief, to the recovery process. Because compassion conveys a level of understanding. When you deeply understand yourself or you deeply understand another, you're able to see them through a light or a lens of love and compassion. We only judge what we're afraid of and we only judge what we don't understand. And so anytime there's judgment in the room or even self-judgment, I stop my clients and say, you've just stopped doing the work. You've entered into it. You've put a defensive shield over your psyche. You've just stopped doing the work. You are never going to reach genuine understanding. Let's bring back compassion into this space. Let's, Let's assume that this is reasonable. What might your reasons be? If we approach it from that way, that everything you're doing is reasonable, sure, it's unhealthy. Sure, it's not sustainable. Sure, there are negative complications and consequences from it. But if we assume that what you're doing is reasonable, meaning you've got some good reasons for why you're doing it, what might those reasons be?
0: Again, it's it's so fascinating when we think about all the complexities that are going on with every human being as they're walking the, the streets, the sidewalks, you know, going to and from their, their, their everyday events. So I'm curious how you got so interested in values, identity. What, what was it for you that attracted you to all of this?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I've often said that I don't really neatly fit into any professional category. Um, I have, I I tend to be a researcher at heart. I like data and I like information. And so because of that, I've developed over the years a deep interest in neuroscience and programming and neuro-linguistic programming. And and so I have that part of me. But I'm also a little bit... um, Woo woo and spiritual, and um, believe in the universe and believe in souls and essence and connections and deeper meanings. And so, because of that, and this isn't something that I talk about often, but I've actually been using uh, a modality of therapy called the neurospiritual, neurospiritual, neuro based on neuroscience, neurospiritual model of psychotherapy. And it combines Neuroscience, trauma, um, emotional, childhood, emotional, or developmental traumas and neglect, and spirituality and deeper meaning, life purpose, destiny. And the things that I'm passionate about, the things that we've been talking about, are sort of fall in line with both. There is a spiritual and existential. Uh, connection to the things that we're talking about, and then there's also the neuroscience and uh, and uh, very simple. They're not simple, but they're explainable phenomenons, right? That we all have. And this neurospiritual model of psychotherapy is something that I use with my clients, and it's really a combination of these different modalities that I've pulled from. And this is something that I've created. So if you go and Google the neuro spiritual model of psychotherapy. This is something that I've copyrighted that I've used that I've created. And I'm building out the tenets of this model, but it's really come about because I didn't see um, what I was practicing in In the therapeutic community, I saw a lot of spirituality and parts work and, you know, purpose and destiny work. And then I saw a lot of neuroscience and the two never really met Um, the, you know, the research community that focused on quantum physics and all of these things never really met the other side of it. And so that's sort of where my interest and passion came from. I, I appreciated the research. Um, I actually read a lot of research for fun on the weekends because i like to know um, what what's the latest in, in you know, our field, um, but also really dabble a lot into spirituality. So for me, I think that all of these things that I've learned have been helpful in my own life. And also I believe in being of service to others. And so when I have a client, I think about, I know that the information that I'm learning will be of use to someone somewhere in the world. And if it helps just one person out, then I feel like I'm living in alignment with my purpose. And that really speaks to my own spirituality.
0: Yeah. Mo, it reminds me a little bit of what I did my master's in, which is counseling psychology with an emphasis on a, it was a combination of Eastern philosophy and Western psychology. It was, it was an, it's called, it's what's called the California Institute of Integral Studies. They're integrating the two, the the East and the West. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I think they're both 100% applicable. And I think that neuroscience and spirituality, it, it is impossible to fit a unique, human soul into one model. We are not all spirit and we are not all neuroscience. We are not all Eastern or all Western. We are a combination. And if we don't allow the two to blend, and that doesn't mean it's a 50-50 blend. It could be 80, 20, whatever it is. We're, We're making people one dimensional and we are not one dimensional. Our struggles are not one dimensional. They cannot always be rationalized away with logic. And sometimes it has to be some spiritual, something larger than ourselves. And sometimes I say to clients, these are the facts. That's right. There's no second guessing. These are just facts, pure facts. I love what you're doing. That is seeing the whole person. Thank you.
1: Yeah, and I I really am interested in technology and the use of incorporating technology into therapy, which is something that is sort of new. And so in my practice, I incorporate virtual reality therapy and biofeedback and different sorts of technologies that allow people to connect to their bodies and learn about their bodies, but also meditation and other, other neurogenesis activities to change the body, the system that we're in, right. To change our programming, but also to infuse that person with a reconnection to nature, the bigger picture, spirituality, purpose, destiny, all those things.
0: I think it sounds incredible. You know, when I was in my eating disorder, I, you know, my, my soul Hurt, mo like my I was like ugh, I was in psychic pain for years. I needed spiritual nurturing. I also needed a lot of evidence-based modalities to sort of take me through skills and and coping skills and, and, and ideas and stuff like that. And so again, I'm just repeating what, what I said earlier but this is this is absolutely incredible.
1: Thank you, Karen. Yeah, it's exciting for me to be able to share this with you and your listeners.
0: It's really, really spectacular. So is that, do you feel that when you're using that model, when you're working with clients with eating disorders, do you oscillate back and forth between spiritual and neuroscience and whatever, like how I was saying, like it doesn't have to be 50-50. How do you typically sit with a client? Or I'm assuming it depends about the client sitting in front of you?
1: Yeah, I would say it depends. It depends um, what they're looking for, what they're needing. Um, I don't think that therapy should ever be about my interests or what I wanna share with the client. It's really more about where they are and meeting them where they are in that process. But through through every step of the journey, I'd like to be prepared with something that I have of value to offer that client, and luckily, over the last you know, I don't know how long it's been 13 15 years, something like that. I've been able to collect a lot of different uh, approaches, interventions, data, information, techniques to be able to offer each step in the journey as I have the privilege of walking alongside them as they find themselves again.
0: This is also what you're trying to model for people, which is living in alignment of what you value. If we live in our values, that does not mean that our, our walk is always going to be easy and straight and there's no bumps or hills or potholes, but you can go off course a little bit, but we always come back to what we value and that is that is a sacred place to be that is a sacred space and that is the internal guidance that i like to to come from i make my decisions from my value system and i think that when people have eating disorders they lose sight of their values they go to the end result of what they think they're going to get and they they don't go down to the bottom of that arrow and say what where did this come from what did, where did this value Begin. What it? What do you truly value?
1: Yes, and I think eating disorders. To add to what you're saying, I agree with everything you've said. Said, but I think that eating disorders essentially become a lifestyle. But really, what it started off as as a coping strategy. It's a coping strategy that became an identity, similar to codependency or addiction. Right? It's a coping strategy that became an identity. And the coping strategies, one I alluded to earlier, which was perfectionism, and the other one is ultra independence, which really is the coping with the trauma of it really hurts when my needs are not being met. It really hurts to not feel understood or taken care of. And so the way that I cope with that is I tell myself, I no longer have needs. I don't need people, I don't need connection. All I need is myself. I have everything that I need within me. Trust is seen as a weakness. Emotions are seen as a weakness. And so those two coping strategies, perfectionism and ultra-independence, become a way of surviving a really difficult childhood dynamic. And you might, as an adult, look back and not conceptualize it as difficult. But if you look at it from the perspective of your child self, It was difficult. You didn't know then what you know now. And so those two coping strategies are rooted in my interest in developmental and childhood trauma. And that's what I see when people come to me and say, I don't have a big T trauma. I I, I don't have something that I can draw a direct line to and say, before this happened and after this happened, here's how my life was different. Instead, so many of my clients come to me unable to find the big T trauma. And instead, we look at emotional neglect and look at how these two coping strategies formed an entire belief system, which then gave birth to all these thoughts about the world, about yourself, about others, and how so much of the way that you're living is really a reflection of your past experiences and in order to have a different future, you're going to have to alter some of those beliefs and adopt and do the work from the inside out.
0: There it is. Mo, it has been, I, I can't even believe that we're we're having to wrap this up because I could sit and talk to you for hours and hours about all of this, but we do have to come to an end. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanna? that you want to say or anything else. And, and I know there's, and I feel like I could be like, Mo, come back for a third episode, but I just, what, what else, if anything, would you like to share before we close?
1: Um, I suppose I'd like to say thank you. And I so appreciate you having me back and I really enjoyed our conversation and to anyone listening, I hope that this is helpful and valuable to you and Again, you can reach me through social media or my website. And if you need help, um, reach out, not just to me, but to anyone that you feel a connection with, just um, start doing the work. That's my invitation for everyone.
0: It's a great invitation. There it is. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next time. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com dot forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.